Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Shares for beginners. Investments, they have to make sense to you. There's no point listening to someone else on why they invest the way they do because that might be unique to them. I mean, you have to invest in a way that you're comfortable with. So just because someone else sounds smart and they say, oh, this is a good investment or whatever, you still have to kind of square it in your own mind that, yes, okay, I understand this investment and what it's going to do for me. I know why I'm investing in it and I'm happy to hold it for a long time. So there's a few things to consider. G'day and welcome back to Shares for Beginners. I'm Phil Muscatello and today we have a break from normal programming. You may or may not know that I'm the co-host of the ETFs for Beginners podcast. We had Dave Gow on from Strong Money Australia and I found his money chat to be truly inspiring. I hope you enjoy listening to Dave and ETFs for Beginners with the wonderful Anna Christina. Hi, and welcome back to ETFs for Beginners, where we dance the mambo of the ETF rhythm. I'm Phil Muscatello, and hello, co-host, Anna Christina. Hi, Phil. How are you doing today? Good, good. So who's our guest today? We've got Dave Gow from Strong Money Australia, which is a website focused on helping people reach financial independence and retire early here in Australia. He publishes regular articles, podcasts, and shares his thoughts and the key lessons that have helped him along the way. So thank you, Dave, for joining us. No worries at all. Good to be here. Thanks for the invite. Yeah, nice to meet you, Dave. Yeah, you too, Phil. So I'm going to kick it off. You're retired. You've retired early at the age of 28. Let's just jump into it. How did that happen? (laughs) And how old are you now? (laughs) I am 33 right now. So how did it happen? So it goes back to when I was around about 19, I think it was. And I kind of became dismayed, I guess, with the full-time kind of workforce at that point. And we got a boss, we got a new boss, and he was really like a pretty poor human being, I would say, like not the greatest kind of person. So it made me question a lot of things. And I started looking around at work and realizing that other people didn't seem all that happy. And I kind of envisioned my future in this factory kind of plodding along like everyone else. And just realizing I didn't want to do that for the next 40 years of my life and just thinking about how I can kind of put myself into a different position so that I don't actually have to do that later. Um, So I went down the rabbit hole of learning about wealth and saving and investing and then it kind of got me all excited that, well, there is actually a different path available for me. I don't actually have to do this 40 hours a week for 40 years thing if I can manage to... um, invest enough that I can uh, live off those investments later. So I went down the rabbit hole of learning all about that and then saving and investing over a period of many years. And together with my partner, then we eventually reached the point where we didn't have to work anymore. That's actually absolutely incredible to even realize at 19 that (laughs) you didn't want to continue doing that. What were you doing at that time? And what were some of the tools that you used to learn about wealth at that age? Good question. 
So the job at the time was I was essentially just laboring in a sheet metal factory here in Perth. And what was the other question? What did I use? What tools did I use? What tools did you use to start your journey towards financial independence? Google. I used Google. And (laughs) uh, so there didn't seem to be like a whole lot of stuff I could find back then. And this is probably 2007, 2008 maybe. So there wasn't anywhere near like the amount of online financial content and blogs and all the rest of it that there is today. So I was finding just a lot of general stuff about wealth and saving and some investment stuff, but I was mostly, I mostly uh, looked out for books at that point because that was the best place I could get like the meaty information that I really wanted at that time that I couldn't really find online. So it was really books for the first like, I'd say multiple years until I eventually did find some blogs later on. So, of course, you used books to learn a little bit more about financial independence. And within those books, or I guess in your research, what was it mainly focused in? You know, did you look at investing in shares? Was it in property? What started this whole journey? Yeah, so even the books around back then were mostly focused on investing and long-term wealth creation, not so much on financial independence and definitely not on retiring early or anything like that. I mean, these kind of concepts have more exploded in the last five to 10 years, I would say. So they weren't around back then. So it was really just investing and general wealth. And so I chose, as most Aussies do, I chose to focus on property rather than shares just because uh, it seemed to make more sense to me at the time. And that's kind of what I could more intuitively grasp and understand in a kind of a simpler kind of way. So that's the path I took. And it wasn't until later that I learned more about shares and and then eventually went down that path too. At the start, it wasn't so much about investment with um, financial independence. It's about um, saving as much of your income as possible. So how frugal did you actually get? Yeah, so I, I suppose I intuitively made the connection that, well, if I want to build enough wealth and have enough investments that I can live off, I need to save a lot. And so the more I save, the more investments I can buy. So I'll get there faster. So yeah, I ended up being quite frugal. I'm someone who is quite happy to go without a lot of things. I feel like my needs are very, very little, I guess, and I can still be happy with a pretty simple life. So how frugal did I get? I think We've saved roughly like 70% of our incomes for quite a few years. I mean, it was up and down, obviously, and not every year was like that. But I think that was like more the peak, 70, 70 70-something percent of our incomes. So we were both working full-time, which obviously makes it easier to save. That's 70% collectively. Yeah, 70% of our total incomes, yeah, household income. It's always impressive. It reminds me of that Mr. Money Mustache article of um, the higher percentage of your saving rate, the quicker you can retire, which which at age of 28, I mean, it's a testament to the math, I guess. That's exactly right. But I didn't know that at the time. I just thought, well, if we save more, we can invest more and then surely we have to get there sooner. That article probably wasn't even in existence back then. So I asked that frugality question because I know some people take this to extremes. Sometimes you get people who are so frugal, they, they eat nothing but um, cans of spaghetti and end up 
possibly getting scurvy. So there's got to be a bit of life balance in there as well, doesn't there? Yeah, definitely. I mean, we saved a lot, but we still lived like normal human beings at the same time. So we still went for trips to different places. We bought an expensive dog. We um, still went out for lunches and dinners occasionally. So we weren't like living this massive life of sacrifice or or anything of the sort. It was still quite cushy, I would say, just not as extremely overindulgent as perhaps most people take it. So what inspired your move from property into shares? Good question. So what happened was we built up this portfolio of properties using like the aggressive savings and also taking some equity out of the properties that we had to buy others. But after a few years, I realized, well, towards the end, really, I realized that even if our properties were paid off, we weren't really going to get all that great of an income stream from those properties because the expenses, which almost nobody talks about, the expenses are just like their next level. You can easily consume maybe 40% or more of your rental income through expenses alone on your investment property. So that was what prompted me to take a second look at shares. See, before the first time around when I looked at shares, it didn't really make sense to me because like everyone else, I'd just see prices going up and down and think, well, this doesn't make any sense. I don't know what's going on here. It's up one day and down the next. I just didn't really get it. But the second time around, I um, I realized that you could invest for like dividend income, you know, and you can actually receive part of the company's profits that they've made during the year. And then that can just come into your bank account and you can use that to live on. And so that's when shares started making sense and I started seeing the other angle of it, like the cash flow and the businesses behind it. So that's when it all started clicking together and combine that with noticing that Australian shares in particular, the income stream is actually very generous. And especially when you've got franking credits as well, which kind of juices that even more. So I started investing in shares. We still had some monthly savings at that time. So we started building this portfolio of shares and then realized like, oh, wow, these dividend payments are actually pretty good, like pretty generous as a percentage yield kind of thing. And then compare that to our properties and imagining if they were paid off and just thinking, wow, this is not going to, it's not going to work with property. If we had our savings over here instead, we would get a much better kind of passive income stream to live on. So that's what really prompted the more aggressive shift towards shares and what ultimately helped us have the courage and the clarity, I guess, to leave work and start shifting our our savings across to shares instead. Yeah, you don't have to paint shares, do you? No, no. (laughs) (laughs) So as part of that process, because you started when you were talking about shares, is that you didn't understand them because they just seemed to be going up and down all the time. Have you been comfortable with that kind of volatility while still focusing on the dividends? I have, yeah. I've found that um, it probably kind of all goes together. So when I realized, okay, it's more about the businesses behind the scenes and the profits that they're generating, which underpins the value of those shares, that's when I kind of, it just melded together in my head and made sense. So I'm able to kind of pull myself away from focusing on the prices because I realize that there's something else going on behind the scenes, obviously the cash flows of the businesses. So Focusing on that or kind of just remembering that fact has really helped me ignore the price movements. And then obviously the dividends hitting the bank account every quarter or whatever, that really helps as well. 
That's like a tangible source of cash flow. It reminds you that these businesses are generating profits. It's not just all about squiggles on the screen. Those two things really combined just help me focus on um, what's more important and not worry too much about the prices. You mentioned their quarterly distributions. (laughs) That sounds like ETFs to me. (laughs) Have you moved into the ETF space? Yes, I have. So when I started initially investing in shares, which is probably seven years ago now, I actually started in individual stocks and individual companies and I found it interesting to research the different companies and what they do and which ones I like and didn't like and all the rest of it. So I went down that path for a little bit and then I later found out about more diversified options where you don't really have to do anything like listed investment companies and then index funds and stuff. So as I kind of moved into retirement, that became more attractive to me than not having to do anything part and the whole uh, passive income stream type situation that became much more attractive. So I ended up stopping the stock picking thing and moving to like diversified funds and uh, ETFs. I always love hearing these type of journeys, right? Like you first started out in property, you realized, hey, that's not really working for your strategy in terms of wanting to, you know, maybe retire early or have financial independence, whatever you thought or called it at the time. And then how that evolved into buying individual shares. And you mentioned, I think, licks and ETFs. I'd love to hear a little bit more about what your strategy is now or how it's changed over time and how you actually think about all of those different things in terms of risk, diversification, and so forth in your own journey over time? Yeah, that's a really good question. The main thing that has changed, I would say, over the period, probably the last five years or so, is I'm wanting to be like a lot more hands-off with my investments. I'm wanting to like earn a good return, but like with minimal effort kind of thing. I just want like that passive income stream coming in. And so I'm more interested in having like a more diversified portfolio where I kind of know, okay, this portfolio is going to be basically the same as it is now for the next 30 years or 50 years. I know that this huge basket of companies is going to keep generating profits and paying dividends basically for the rest of my lifetime. So I really like things that I don't have to think about too much. And so that's probably been a big factor in like the investments I choose. I like investments that are simple and I don't have to do anything and just, you know, the income comes to the bank account and it's pretty low stress and low maintenance and yeah. ETFs fit the bill then, right? (laughs) They do. They definitely do. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. You also talked about the appeal of dividends and seeing that hit your bank account. Is that also something that you consider when looking at ETFs? Yes and no. I mean, I like the fact that I can get that uh, decent income stream every quarter, every year. But when I'm looking at investments, 
I am kind of considering the bigger picture, like the bigger portfolio in mind first and foremost, rather than just chasing like the highest yield from here, there or everywhere. So I'm more interested in like a pretty diversified portfolio, but hopefully one that produces like a decent income at the same time. So it's kind of a balance and I definitely wouldn't chase super high yields just because it looks more attractive or it's more kind of immediate gratification of getting the high payments each quarter or something like that. Yeah, it can be, I guess, in a way, a red herring if um, you're not looking at a portfolio holistically. So I think that that's um, a really great way to think about the diversification of a portfolio. So how do you diversify? Are you across a number of asset classes? Yes. So I have a fair chunk of my portfolio is in Australian shares, but I also have global shares and some REITs as well in the portfolio. So we just had a couple of pieces of jargon I just want to explain. You talked about LICs before and you talked about REITs. What are they? So LICs or LICs are listed investment companies. And so they are basically an investment company which is listed, hence the name, on the share market. And so you can buy shares in those like you can any other company. And so you'll have LICs or LICs that have various strategies and they'll put together a portfolio of maybe 20 stocks, 50 stocks, 100 stocks. It depends on what kind of strategy they're employing. And so they'll try and generate a decent return and provide income stream for shareholders. And they're managed by a active manager. And then real estate trusts or REITs stands for real estate investment trusts. You can buy those just like you can any other share on the stock exchange. And so they're generally like a large not always large, but generally like large portfolio of commercial properties which are managed and then the income stream or the rental income is collected by the manager and then paid on to investors as distributions, usually each quarter as well. So yeah, that's how they work. Dave, are you saying you can own property without owning physical property? (laughs) Oh, you can. You can, absolutely. So are you diversified in any other kind of asset classes, say bonds or gold? No, I'm not really not really a fan of gold or commodities or kind of non-income producing assets or non-productive assets. But I don't have any bonds in my portfolio. I just choose to keep like cash instead of bonds since they're not all that different in a sense. So not really. It's mostly shares and cash and I still have some property left over, but none of those other assets and no crypto either. No crypto. (laughs) No no crypto. You're such a sensible guy. (laughs) (laughs) I'm boring, mate. I'm boring. I like my boring investments. (laughs) Boring but beautiful. Yes. Where have we heard that before? (laughs) Boring is great because in a lot of cases, it really just comes down to that money mindset, you know, having a strategy, sticking to it, automating it, keeping it simple. I know, Dave, we've chatted about this previously around that kind of stuff. What are some tips that you would give someone who wants to consider long-term investing? Um, So I suppose, first of all, you want to build a consistent savings habit so that you actually have monthly cash flow to invest. And so being able to invest on a regular basis, actually, that's probably my second point is to 
is to um, make sure that you're investing on a regular basis. Don't try and get too clever with, oh, the market's a little bit high this week. I think I'll wait till later and hopefully it'll come down because, yeah, maybe it will, maybe it won't. But you're going to like tie yourself in knots trying to figure out the best time to to buy because let's say the market does drop, then next week you probably think, oh, it, it might drop some more. I'll just wait some more. And then obviously like it might go back up and you've just kind of screwed up your routine. So it's better just to kind of stick with the same approach and same investing habit every month. And so I would pick investments that have to make sense to you. There's no point listening to someone else on why they invest the way they do because that might be unique to them. I mean, you have to invest in a way that you're comfortable with. So just because someone else sounds smart and they say, oh, this is a good investment or whatever, you still have to kind of square it in your own mind that yes okay I understand this investment and what it's going to do for me I know why I'm investing in it and I'm happy to hold it for a long time so there's a few things to consider this is really where personal responsibility comes in so many people want to be told what to do and you kind of naturally learned yourself and taught yourself how to do this but um, again yeah it is personal responsibility isn't it and taking taking command of your actions Yeah, everything is, I mean, even just in terms of personal finance, you have to kind of hold yourself accountable for your decisions and the way your life is. I mean, things might go wrong, but it's still up to you how you deal with that. I mean, no one's going to kind of fix your problems for you or no one's going to achieve financial independence for you. You have to actually make some harder decisions and be able to think long-term and take control of your life rather than just let life decide for you where you end up in 20 years' time. So it's it's definitely about personal responsibility with um, finance and investing as well. And how much time do you spend on your investments? <laughs> Not much. <laughs> Not much at all. A better question would have been, how much time do you spend writing or thinking about um, financial independence? Uh, yeah, so I spend a bit of time writing about it these days since I have a blog. But yeah, not much else on the investing side. But yeah, I, I think about personal finance and financial independence quite a bit because it's a topic that I'm really passionate about and an area where I'd like to help people improve their lives and get better outcomes for themselves by sharing like what I've learned and what kind of principles and lessons have helped me along the way. So just trying to pass that on and help other people do it for themselves as well. When someone uh, arrives at your website and page for the first time, what do they find in the getting started section? Yeah, so in the getting started section or like in the beginner section, they'll find like a lot of the most frequently asked questions that have been emailed and and asked in comments several, several times by people who are new to the site or new to financial independence in general. So they'll find a lot lot of answers to those questions. And then there's also a list of articles that are suitable for beginners. So different topics that I've talked about, whether it's saving or mindset or investing or different kind of strategies that might help them and things that I've I've learned as well so a lot of different things on that particular page so with those thoughts in mind how does your mindset affect the way that you can achieve financial independence and um, becoming a better investor so I would say your mindset is if not one of the most important things it is the most important thing in terms of becoming someone who is a 
good long-term investor, but also someone who is capable of building wealth throughout their lives. And the reason I say that is you have some people who are, they've already convinced themselves that it's not possible before they've even started. And so if you kind of approach it with that frame of mind, it is very, very difficult to bring yourself back from that because you've already, you've already got it made up in your mind that the world works a certain way and things are not possible for you. So it's very difficult to unwrap that. So I would think that, yeah, it's, it's really tough. Have you had personal experience of talking to people that have those kind of ideas? I just see the comments online frequently. It's a bit sad because you can tell that that person, they probably want to change their life, but they just feel so frozen and they just feel like it's not possible when they haven't even really, well, they haven't tried for a start, but they haven't even really made any attempt or they're not approaching it with an open mind that, okay, instead of just shooting down a certain idea, let's see kind of what there is to it. And maybe some of it is applicable to me. Maybe some of it isn't because we're all different. But at the same time, you have to approach it in terms of, okay, what can I take from this information? Like, can I use any of this to benefit my own life rather than just seeing someone else do something and be like, oh, it's all right for them because of X, Y, Z and thinking that everyone else has it, has it easier than you. Because, I mean, the truth is if you're living in modern-day Australia, you already have it pretty good in terms of the people that are on the planet right now but also everyone that came before us as well. We're in a pretty good place. If you're even close to middle class in Australia, things are not as bad as you probably think. So we can all take little steps, even the tiniest steps each day to work towards a future that we would much rather have than the one that we might be given if we take no action at all. Those little tiny steps, I think, end up becoming quite big steps over time, right? Like you do these little things. And I think you mentioned previously the two different areas where different steps can be taken. Some of it is in the saving side and some of it is in the investing side. And both of those are two different levers in a part of the same strategy, right? You were talking about saving 70% because you wanted to invest more and they go hand in hand. So a part of it is how can you decrease your expenses by increasing your income? So I'd love to hear from you in terms of thinking around saving and investing. What are some of the first tips that you would give someone who's on their journey? Yeah. So obviously you want to get that savings rate up from Hopefully it's not zero right now, but hopefully you want to get it up to a higher percentage than it is already. And you can do that by either spending less and optimizing your current expenses, your current lifestyle, or you can also do that by earning more and kind of making those expenses a smaller portion of your overall income. And so both options are really good, but generally the the easiest option to start with would be to look at your spending first and see where you can maybe cut back on some things that aren't really as important to you as you might think they are. I mean, it's worth going over your finances every probably once a year or maybe even twice a year to see all your current expenses and are you really getting value from those things or is it just something that you've kind of built into your life but you're not really kind of getting the most enjoyment from it for the money that you're spending. So after you've kind of optimized that a bit, then you can really look at increasing your income, whether you do that by 
working more hours or switching to like a better employer or you could switch industries or you could start a side gig or something like that. And having already kind of gotten your spending under control, it's going to mean that when that higher income starts coming in, you're going to use all of that more income more productively because you've already kind of nailed down your expenses and your you've already got that savings habit in place. So I think that's really helpful to do first and then you can look at boosting your income a bit later. Those are fantastic tips. And I had another question because I know your investing journey started mainly with property. If you were to go back in time, would you do it the same way or how would you change your, (laughs) how would you change the trajectory of you retiring so early at the ripe old age of 28? (laughs) That's a really good question because people automatically assume like, oh, you started in property, you retired early. You must have made so much money from property. I mean, it would be nice to say that we did, but it didn't really work like that. I mean, some of our properties did quite good, but some of them honestly did like terribly. And how many properties did you have, if you don't mind me asking? Eight. Yeah. So our returns were actually, I would just classify them as like, okay, overall. And so starting again, I wouldn't go down the property path, which like kind of surprises people because they assume, oh, that's how you did it. How can you say you wouldn't do that again? But it was really like that savings rate, that aggressive saving year after year that ended up being like quite a lot after, you know, eight, nine years or whatever. And that's normal for like a 10-year time frame because compounding takes like quite a while to kick in. So it's very normal for people that a lot of their wealth in the first 10 years comes from saving rather than it does from like big investment returns. So I would go down just a very simple share portfolio route. I would probably just pick one or two index funds, like a broadly diversified portfolio just with a couple of funds and then that would be it. I would just save as much as possible and throw it in there every month, every month, every month and then that would be pretty much it. I would just keep it super simple. It's interesting to hear that you would go back in time and literally buy one or two index funds, you know, Um, because in in a lot of cases, people think that you need so many, but with ETFs, you can often access a whole range of industries, a whole range of countries, and actually be quite diversified in just one ETF, for example. Yeah, it's strange, right? Because people think, well, you need like a long list of funds because it kind of looks more diversified if you have this portfolio with lots of different things in it. But it doesn't really actually mean you're more diversified because you can have one single thing and it has like 5,000 companies or something monstrous like that inside it. So, yeah, it's definitely um, not just how many funds you have, but like what's underneath the wrapper that matters more. Yeah, or how many of your funds are actually the exact same indices. Like overlapping ones? Yeah, overlapping companies, overlapping indices. I mean, that's the other thing that doesn't get talked about quite as much when people start to buy more and more and hold more in their portfolio and realize that actually there's so much overlap. Yeah. Mm. You're not going to increase your returns with the more funds you have. (laughs) (laughs) Really? You're more likely just going to be overcomplicating it. But I think everyone kind of goes down that path first. Because I think we start investing and we develop like a passion for it. So we're interested. So we think, oh, I like this one. I like this one. I'll put all these in my portfolio. And then later you realize, yeah, I don't actually need most of those. I could probably just have this one, this one, you know, maybe this one and then that's it. So I think we kind of have to learn through trial and error sometimes and realizing a bit later that we could have done it the simpler way. But almost 
almost inevitably we all choose like the more complex path first and then later realize that it doesn't need to be like that. ETFs, keeping it simple. <laughs> <laughs> Dave, it was such a pleasure. If um, anyone wants to hear more from you, where do they go? Yeah, thanks. Um, they can just go to strongmoneyaustralia.com. Beautiful. Thanks again. Thank you very much, Dave. If you found this podcast helpful, please tell a friend. It may help them and help us keep going with the show. Also, don't forget to rate us. ETFs for Beginners is for information and educational purposes only. It isn't financial advice and you shouldn't buy or sell any investments based on what you've heard here. Any opinion or commentary is the view of the speaker only, not ETFs for Beginners. This podcast doesn't replace professional advice regarding your personal financial needs, circumstances, or current situation. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.